Welcome to Chart Beats, a journey through SOAR. I'm Gavin Scott from chartbeats.com.au and I'm here with my friend Matthew Denby. Hi, Matt. Hi, how is everyone? Matt and I have known each other for, oh, about 15 or 16 years now, haven't we? Yeah, the very first time I met you was at an Australian Idol press call. Oh, those were the days. Good times. But uh, we're going to be talking about pop from way before Australian Idol, back in the 80s. And as the title of this podcast suggests, we're going to be talking about pop producers and songwriters, Mike Stock, Matt Aiken and Pete Waterman. A topic we've spent a lot of time discussing over the years we've known each other, haven't we? That's right. Many a coffee break at work has been spent uh, whiling away our lives talking about Dead or Alive and Kylie Minogue and, dare I say it, the Reynolds girls. Stock, Aiken, Waterman really need no introduction, but in case you've stumbled across this podcast thinking we're going to be talking about DIY tools or something like that, Saw worked with, as Matt just mentioned, Dead or Alive, Kylie Minogue, Reynolds girls, Mel and Kim, Bananarama, Rick Astley, and quite a few unsuccessful artists too but they had a pretty good strike rate didn't they they had an amazing strike rate that was certainly the soundtrack of my youth all through high school i really loved pretty much almost everything they did and they had more than 100 top 40 hits in the UK. And there was a continuous run of, of years on end where they had at least one top 40 entry every single week on, on the UK chart for right. quite a few years. And here in Australia, they did pretty well. I counted just before 58 top 50 hits. Wow, that's amazing. For Stock Aiken Waterman and then a couple more after Aitken left, a couple more Kylie singles. So they were very well known here. When did you become a fan, Matt? Well, I remember loving uh, Divine, but uh, I really got into them around the time of Princess and Dead or Alive. I love the Dead or Alive albums, Youthquake and Mad, Bad and Dangerous to Know and Princess. I, I really loved her. I didn't notice that they were produced by the same people. I, I don't think I would have even thought to look at the liner notes because, you know, Princess is a soul singer and Dead or Alive, a uh, high energy act. Who would have assumed that they were produced by the same people? But I love the production on both. And I think then around between probably Bananarama's Venus and Mel and Kim's FLM, album which was one of the B albums of my teen years I started to notice that all these great records that I was obsessed with were produced by the same people and then I started to switch from buying records because they were produced by the producers rather than the names that were on the labels. That's right there was always a a great um, rush of excitement when you turn over a single and see produced by Stock, Aitken, Waterman and you may may not even have known who Brother Beyond were right? um, but you had to have it because because those names were there. I, I was the same around 87 when I realised and connected the dots that that these three were producing a lot of the music I liked and it kind of coincided with them becoming more high profile as producers. There were articles on them in Smash Hits, for example, and and their faces were known, whereas producers back in those days, you barely even heard, unless they were Quincy Jones. Or Giorgio Moroder. Yeah, most people didn't know who the producers were, but Stock and Warnman started to have this profile. Yeah. But what I didn't realise until the 90s was how many songs they had done that either didn't come out in Australia or did come out here but weren't successful. And it wasn't until the dawn of the internet and there was a great page called Cafe 80s. I remember it. And a Stock Aiken Waterman discography there by uh, Saw Guru Jeremy Kay put that together. And suddenly in the mid 90s, I found all these songs that I didn't know existed by artists I'd never heard of and, and started collecting and was swapping 12 inch singles with people in France to get my hands on every Stock Aiken Waterman song that I could. And I got most of them. Yeah, yeah. Well, Gavin is more of the collector and the completist, whereas I've, I've sort of got more. I don't know, feelings and memories about some amazing years when I was in high school that are connected to these records. So Gavin can tell you all the minutiae of some of these tracks, but I've got some 
some some good memories I want to share. You're you're a bit more discerning, shall we say? Some might say so. I do have the WWF album. Uh, I have to admit, I think I got it for a pound on CD in in the UK, I, I, and I had to have it. It was like completing the set. Right, right. Well, my, my interest started to wane by like probably 1989 when there were a few acts that I didn't really connect with at all. Uh, but obviously there were still some brilliant tracks that came out into the early 90s, like the Kylie's uh, Rhythm of Love singles are some of the best stuff that Saw ever did. So I didn't uh, disconnect myself from Saw. I was just a little more discerning, but I still understand that they've got some brilliant, brilliant records. And I'm looking forward to going back and remembering some of those songs and also perhaps discovering some that I wasn't aware of. Which brings us to the point of this podcast. There is going to be a structure to this. Uh, there's a good summary of Stock Aitken Waterman's backstory on stockaitkenwaterman.co.uk. So we're not going to talk about their history so much. We're going to talk about the music. We're going to talk about that discography that I discovered in the mid-90s. And we're going to start at the beginning in 1984 when the trio got together and go all the way through until Matt Aitken left the partnership in 1991. In each episode, we're going to go chronological through the singles produced by Stock Aitken Waterman four or five at a time and every so often we might pause and do a special episode on on those big releases we all know and love. That's right yes and I've got uh, one coming up very soon that I could not be more excited about. And depending how we go we might carry on and do the Stock and Waterman years and who knows even go on to the Stock and Aitken reunion at Love This. We'll see how we go. Let's not get too ahead of ourselves at this point. We're going to be talking about our memories of the songs, discuss the stories behind them and debate why we think they were or weren't successful. And for our first episode, we actually have a special guest joining us to talk about Saw's first UK top five hit that she sang. Wow, yes, we've got the queen of high energy herself. That's right, Hazel Dean will be joining us later to talk about her first hit with Saw. But Matt, it's 1984, Mike Stock, Matt Aitken and Pete Waterman have joined forces. What was their first joint production? Well, if you think back to 1984, what do you think of in terms of pop? Probably the first name that springs to my mind is Frankie Goes to Hollywood. And that was something that was definitely on uh, Stock Aitken and Waterman's minds when they produced their first ever single, which was The Upstroke by Agents Aren't Aeroplanes. It came out on a minor uh, label, a dance music label called Proto. So it was very infused with what Proto was known for, which was high energy. Let's listen to a bit of The Upstroke by Agents Aren't Aeroplanes. Right, so that was the chorus for the upstroke by Agents Aren't Aeroplanes, which was a a track that Stock and Aitken took to Pete Waterman, and that was basically the song that brought them together, because Pete Waterman saw something in that song. And, you know, we say it's influenced by Relax... But from that snippet, you wouldn't be able to tell. But from the introduction of the song, it's very, very clear the um, the Relax influence. So let's have a quick listen to that intro where it's so obvious that Relax was a bit of an inspiration. It also would be clear that Relax was an inspiration if you looked at the sleeve of this record and then compare it to the sleeve of Relax. Very, very similar sort of sexualized, slightly fetishy images on the cover, isn't it? 
Yes, it's it's quite apparent when you see it. And at the time that I got this single, which was one of my um, mid nineties finds, I got the twelve inch sent over to me from from someone. I, I didn't actually pay that much attention to it, but it was a fairly uh, influential high energy track. It wasn't a big hit. It got to number ninety three in the UK, but it was quite influential, wasn't it? Yeah, it was picked up by some quite cool DJs like John Peel in the UK played it, uh, made it a little bit of a cult record. I understand it was played at some of the clubs like Heaven, but no, it didn't take off in a big commercial way. So Matt, let's talk about the innuendo in the upstroke and yeah. how I completely missed that there was any innuendo in the title, The Upstroke. Yeah, well, I, I actually said to Gavin off air, uh, what did you think it was about swimming? But I mean, apparently originally when uh, Matt Aitken and Mike Stock were trying to sell this idea to uh, Pete Waterman, they claimed that The Upstroke was a, a dance craze that was going on, which they'd completely made up. But obviously, like all good pop records, it's got a double meaning. Clearly, this is talking about something other than that. And just like Relax, which of course was banned for its double meaning. Yeah, well, single meaning perhaps. <laughs> well, yes. Now, we've got this far and we haven't even talked about who were agents, aren't aeroplanes. Well, it was basically Stock and Aitken. It was a track that they put together, but it was fronted by a pair of sisters called Diana and Julie Seabrook. Yeah. Exactly how much involvement in the track they had, I'm not sure. Mm. But, uh, but yeah, they were the front people for Agents Aren't Aeroplanes. It was a one single act. There was no follow-up. No. It's a bit of a curio. I mean, I certainly never heard this song at the time. I was probably like 11 or 12 when it came out. I wasn't out at nightclubs. But it's fun. It's it's a, I, I sort of see it as a bunch of hooks in search of a song or in search of a chorus. It doesn't really come together in a way that Stock Aitken and Waterman ultimately produce pop songs. But it's great to go back as a bit of, you know, pop archaeology and sort of deconstruct it and see where it all started. It reminds me of a kids' TV theme from like a Saturday morning show, The Upstroke. <laughs> that that bit, maybe not that throbbing bass line, but that kind of almost really happy chorus does remind me of kids' TV. But uh, if nothing else, it got Stock Aitken and Waterman on the radar. It did, it did. And big things were going to come very quickly, but... Perhaps not with the second single. <laughs> uh, yes, they did a lot of work for Proto Records at this stage and Agents on Aeroplanes had been released by Proto and Proto gave Stock Aiken and Waterman their next job, which was to produce the Eurovision entry for Cyprus in 1984. A singer called Andy Paul, who Stock and Aiken had actually worked with before on a song called Heartbreak Situation. He was representing Cyprus, where he was originally from, with a track called Anna Marie Elena, and it was the second Stock Aiken and Waterman production. Let's have a listen. How pure Eurovision is that, Matt? Yeah, it is, which isn't a great thing for me because I'm not really a Eurovision boy, unfortunately. But it's interesting to sort of hear how Eurovision it is because obviously Saw studied the material closely and made sure that it certainly hit all the marks. It's got a bit of a velare about it. I think they tapped into that and they tapped into with that plinky plonky bum 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 <laughs> sound. It is very Eurovision. Um, but despite sounding very Eurovision, it did only come 15th out of 9. 19 tracks in 1984 so it didn't do very well at Eurovision it also didn't chart in the UK but it's really catchy 
Yeah, look, it's not for me. I've got to say, you know, I'm glad it wasn't a big hit because this could have set the path for Stockhake and Waterman going forward and we could have had a lot more of this instead of all the amazing high-energy-tinged pop masterpieces and soul classics that we got from them. I know, imagine if they'd become the go-to people for Eurovision. Yeah, yeah. But another thing we need to talk about is the video for this song, don't we, Gavin? Oh, it's fantastic. And actually, if you go on to stockakeandwaterman.co.uk, they do have all their videos and all their songs on there now. And so you can hear the full versions of the songs and you can watch all the videos. But do check out Andy Paul wandering around Cyprus, kissing grannies and being like a local legend. Yeah, and he's got uh, more cleavage than Sabrina in this video. I think he goes right down to the uh, to the waistline. He does, showing off his furry man chest in, <laughs> in that video. Speaking of showing off, the single art, this is a single I don't actually own. It's one of the only Stockhaker Waterman songs I never bothered owning because I, I I don't know why I just decided I didn't need it but the back cover is very interesting it is uh yeah so we've got this cheesy Eurovision song and then just out of all context there's a couple of topless women laying on a beach on the back cover Fantastic. Very European. It is, it is. So that was uh, Andy Paul. And, you know, so far, Stockhake and Waterman, they'd had two productions out. Neither had really set the charts alight, but that was about to change, wasn't it? It was about to change. Now, this was the first Stockhake and Waterman song that I ever heard, and I loved it immediately. Went on to become a classic and a groundbreaker, and that really set the stage for their careers. It is, of course, their first major hit, You Think You're a Man by Divine. So that was You Think You're a Man by Divine, released in July 1984 in the UK, number 16 in the UK, even bigger in Australia, number 8 in Australia, partly because Divine came down to Australia and appeared on Countdown, which was kind of like our version of Top of the Pops. For... Yeah, it was a sensation. Yeah, Divine did this big promo tour and he's all over the mainstream news and uh, current affairs TV shows, all over the newspapers. There was a big controversy. Is he even going to appear on Countdown? Because, you know, it's quote unquote a children's show and he's in these horrific films, these films that you hear so much about in the schoolyard about uh, his eating habits in uh, John Waters' Pink Flamingos and then he's going to be on a kid's show. It was an outrage. But it just served to push the single up and I think the same happened in the UK. I think he, he did appear on Top of the Pops and there were complaints, of course, because the BBC, there's always complaints about something. But I, I think it just pushed it even further, that and the fact that it was a fantastic, fantastic song. It's a fantastic song. They got it so right. Three things made this a hit. Fantastic, well-structured song. Amazing, highly competent, uh, door-kicking production. And a celebrity, a personality to push it. So that started Stock Aitken Waterman's relationship with celebrity and how celebrity could sell records. That's right. It's interesting you say door-kicking because that's my favourite bit of the song, the shut the door bit. Let's have a quick listen. Shut the door. Take a look around and tell me what you find. Fantastic. I, I love that bit of the song. It's so over the top and dramatic. And, and that's the whole song really, isn't it, Matt? Completely it is. over the top. 
It is, it is. And even the recording of this song had a bit of drama to it because uh, Mike Stock was actually trying to get uh, Divine to sing well on this record. I don't know why he did that. Perhaps he wasn't familiar with Divine's uh, previous work. And then uh, they, they sent the tape over to Proto Records and Proto was horrified because Divine was singing too well. So they had to try and get Divine to come back into the studio and re-record the vocal. But he was already on the road to Heathrow Airport uh, going back to the US. They had to go and intercept him bring him back into the studio and get him to scream and use that trademark raspy voice. And that's what makes this song that screamed, shouted vocal. And I read online somewhere his Top of the Pops performance was described as Dusty Springfield's sluttier, bigger sister, which I think (laughs) is a great way of describing it. It was all about this, you know, this pop star, unlike anyone else on the chart, singing this song that was unlike anything else on the charts, because there wasn't a lot of high energy on the chart. No, it still hadn't quite broken through yet. It was still on the edges of culture. It was a sound that came out of the underground of the club scene, gay clubs mainly. Uh, Boys Town, they call it sometimes. It was high energy, and Proto was really pushing this sound, weren't they? They were, and Proto was run by a guy called Barry Evangeli, and he was the one who got Stockhake and Waterman to do all these tracks. They didn't write this song. It was written by a guy called Jeff Dean who went on to write Kinky Boots and Barry brought it to Stockade Warner and said right go for it yeah whack um, on some cowbells and hand claps and yeah. then and then whack on some more and it was the record that changed everything and now of course the success of Divine or the or rather the work with Divine led to the final song we're going to talk about tonight which is Whatever I Do Wherever I Go by Hazel Dean and it was even bigger in the UK than You Think You're a Man it got to number four it was released just a couple of weeks after Divine's track let's have a quick listen Right, so that was Hazel Dean with Whatever I Do, Wherever I Go. And Hazel was coming off the back of Searchin', her first hit. And, well, why don't we let her tell the story? Here's Hazel Dean talking about meeting Pete Waterman and how it led to Saw's first ever top five single. I bumped into him one day at Proto. I was down there. Searching was sitting at number six in the charts here. And he said, oh, what's happening then? I said, well, uh, I need a follow-up. I said, I haven't got a follow-up for searching. I'm sitting at number six and I'm pulling my hair out here. What shall I do? So he said, I've just met these two guys. He said, come down come down to listen to this track we're doing in the studio, which was for, for Proto Records. Uh, and they were working at the um, Marquee Studio. I said, okay, I'll come, I'll come and meet them because I, I needed to get another single out. Otherwise, I'd have been a one-hit wonder. It would have all been over. So off I trot to the studio and there I meet Mike and Matt. And the track I hear, the backing track of is Divine, You Think You're a Man. And that I heard that backing track and I said, oh, it's fantastic. It sounds great. So that's how um, Whatever I Do came around. So you heard the backing track without the vocal. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the track was just sensational at the time. You know, it sounded fabulous. So you, you got the sense that they were onto something and, and that it would be a good fit for you. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. That meeting with Pete, because I think you describe it as a fluke on your website. Was that a real sliding doors moment? If you hadn't have bumped into him, you might not have heard Divine. Oh, yes, it was. But it, it's, you know, it, I was sitting in the chart. So obviously that interested Pete Waterman. He could smell hits, you know. <laughs> 
Yeah, it was in a way. Although, as I said, I'd already met him, but he, yeah, we did, we did literally bumped in a hall. We bumped in as as I was sort of coming in. Maybe he was going out. I, I can't remember what. But we just bumped in. She said, "Well, what's happening then, kid?" He calls everybody kid, and uh, and I just said, "Well, you know, I'm um, Ian Anthony Stevens was in America, and I said I need to get another track out there. Otherwise, I'm going to have troubles." It was just luck, timing. Who knows? But you know, that's how it happened. It was that. It was that simple. So that was Hazel Dean talking about the genesis of whatever I do, wherever I go. And yeah, it's kind of one of those, as we said, sliding doors moments, wasn't it, Matt? Yes, it changed everything. It's certainly one of my favourites of the early stock Aitken and Waterman years. It's probably my favourite Hazel Dean song as well. It's so joyous. It's got a fantastic chorus. It's brilliant. It's very up and it's funny because as Saw fans will know, Whatever I Do, Wherever I Go wasn't the original title and it wasn't even the original song. The song was quite different originally. It was called Dance Your Love Away. It was recorded by a guy called Michael Prince and it had a completely different chorus Mm. which lacked that euphoria of Whatever I Do, Wherever I Go. And we talked to Hazel about that as well and here's what she had to say about the transformation of Dance Your Love Away into Whatever I Do, Wherever I Go. So moving on to Whatever I Do, which of course when you heard it, uh, was it was Dance Your Love Away. What form was it in at that point? Had Michael Prince recorded it already? Yeah, oh yeah, it, it was a finished product. Pete Waterman may tell you different, but this is the, this is the true story. Um, they sent the song over to me and I heard the, the verse as it was. And remember, I'm the one sitting at six in the chart. So at that point in time, I had a little bit more sort of, I could push a bit more, you know, and they hadn't had a hit record yet, the three of them. Um, <laughs> I had a bit more power at that particular point in time, let's say. So I said, and I heard the chorus and it just... Well, it just didn't do it for me. It just didn't sort of just kind of didn't work. And I am a songwriter myself. So, I, you know, I do sort of know about these things. So I said, well, I said, I love the cho- I love the verse. It's great. I said, but the chorus just kind of just doesn't lift. It just doesn't work for me. So they went away. Two or three days later, they got someone to demo it. And then they came up with the chorus of whatever I do, wherever I go, as we know and love it now. And it was that that we did it that fast, you know. And then the next thing we're in, we're recording it. And we have got, you know, we've got a new new single going out. And so why wasn't Michael Prince's version released? Was it just kind of being sat on well i think they knew i'd have the hit with it i would imagine i don't i mean i don't know the full story because you know he'd obviously recorded it and i don't i don't really know the whole full story i only ever met the guy once in my life he's probably not my biggest fan shall we say. <laughs> but you know that's life I don't really know. I couldn't really tell you that. I don't know what. Well, I, well, I'm, I'm assuming it's because they knew that I was. If they got that out, because when they when it was released, it was just flipping over the counters, as Pete Waterman described it. You know, I guess that's the reason why. That was a, a very good way of describing it. The new chorus definitely it lifted, didn't it? It, it felt joyous. Yeah, but it, yeah, it's like searching. It just come. It just just sort of just comes from nowhere, doesn't it? It's, and that's they were great at doing that. You know, it's just you've got to have a chorus that lifts. It's um, depending on the kind of song and with high energy. You know, for me, that's that's the way to go. Speaking of high energy, uh, what about the top of the pops performance for this song? So much fun. The crowd was really going off. Those two guys dancing behind Hazel. It was like the the absolute joy of a fantastic high energy record 
hitting the public for one of the first times and everyone just loving it. It's a great performance and it's actually that would have fueled the single going up the chart because it didn't have a music video. Hazel didn't actually release any music videos during her time with Proto Records. So it was all about TV appearances, radio play, depending on how much radio play Stockhake and Waterman were getting at that point. Well, actually, yeah. Um, funnily enough, this record did get radio play, which is surprising when you consider what an edgy sort of club sound it was at the time. And we know this because uh, the wonderful Pete Burns actually told the story of he used to his clock radio used to go off at 10 a.m every morning love to sleep in that late and he said you know he was always woken up by the sound of this song whatever i do wherever i go and it was that moment that he knew he wanted to track down whoever produced this record so yeah this what this record did represent a huge turning point and we're going to get to that later but just keep it in mind Yes, it's funny how these songs all led to each other, isn't it? How the upstroke led to Stockhake and Waterman getting more work with Proto, which led them to Divine. Divine led them to Hazel. Hazel led them to Dead or Alive. Dead or Alive led them to Bananarama. Bananarama led them to Kylie. It's kind of, yeah, every everything happens for a reason. It's a cascade of amazing songs, isn't it? That's right. And that's the four amazing songs that we have for this episode. The very first four Stockhead Waterman productions. And we will tackle the next four productions in episode two. And we might even hear some more from Hazel Dean, who is going to reveal something about, you know, I said that she didn't release any music videos during her time with Proto. That doesn't mean she didn't record any. Anyway, we'll hear from her in episode two. Until then, head to chartbeats.com.au slash saw if you want to subscribe and gain access to bonus content, including our deep dives into material we don't have time for in the regular episodes. This week, we take a closer look at those curious credits on early Saw releases, directed by, and you can also hear more from my chat with Hazel Dean. So that's chartbeats.com.au slash saw. Where else can you find us, Matt? You can find us on Twitter. You can find Gavin at Chartbeats AU, and you can find me at Mr. Matt Denby. Please, if you enjoy this podcast, let us know. And also talk to your friends about it and make sure you give us a good star rating because that does help other people find the podcast. If you did enjoy the podcast, give us a good review. And we'll see you soon with episode two. Bye. Bye.